amen to that. In Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 268. This is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023, and we have finally arrived at Hebrews 8.13, the last verse of Hebrews 8. And in this increment, we're going to deal with the transformation of our imagination, the transformation of our imagination. And hopefully, when we get to next Wednesday, which should be increment 270, we'll be dealing with the transformation of our expectation. In fact, both of these messages are about both of those things. The transformation of our imagination and the transformation of our expectation. And so, Father, we thank you for another opportunity to explore the reality of your son, Jesus Christ, and in seeing him, seeing you, we give our hearts and souls over to the Lord, the Spirit, the hegemonic Spirit. May he lead us into all truth and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. We have in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 that which I call the A.D. 70 trajectory. Much of the New Testament, if not all of it, has a trajectory toward the events of A.D. 70. Its centrality is in the event of A.D. 30, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Its trajectory, prophetically speaking, eschatologically speaking, is toward A.D. 70 and the destruction of of the temple in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at that at some, with some creative ways today and analogies from the scripture that I've never seen before. And we're going to take a look at some things, therefore, that should be new. We are at the present time in the small beginnings of a USSJC revolution, a new 21st century Jesus revolution in which Jesus Christ is seen as he ought to be in his universally saving significance. And this is the small beginning. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. I'm going to look at the small phrase here today, angus. The Greek word angus is E-G-G-U-S. And... You'll see that in print someday. <laughs> and the next word is afanismu, afanismu. Angus afanismu, which means near to or close to vanishing, close to disappearing altogether. And the thesis that's going to guide us in these next increments, 268 and 270, we Still, the jury's still out about what 269 will be, but I think it'll be apocalyptic. The cosmology and the eschatology that you hold has profound real-life consequences. That's the thesis that will guide 268 and 270. The cosmology, that's the study of the universe with its origins in God, and eschatology, the study of the final things. The cosmology and the eschatology that you hold has profound real-life consequences. And again, the phrase that we'll be looking at today is angus, E-G-G-U-S or E-N-G-U-S in the transliteration. And then this key word, A-P-H-A-N, I-S-M-O-U, afanismu or afanismus, which means total dissolution. So near vanishing, near or close to disappearing, close to total dissolution. And that's what we have in Hebrews 8.13. Again, the thesis, the cosmology, and the eschatology that you hold has profound real-life consequences, psychological consequences, spiritual consequences, ethical consequences, real-life consequences. 
Hebrews 8.13, my translation reads this way. By saying new, that's kainos in the Greek, he makes the first obsolete. What's he talking about in the context? If you don't know, you haven't been listening, it's the new covenant and the new covenant community. By saying new, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, etc. By saying new, he makes the first obsolete. The first what? Well, the first covenant and everything associated with it. Now, what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. And that's angus afanismu. The implication, in fact, the warning in Hebrews 8.13 is of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and with it the vanishing of the entire system of the Levitical priesthood. The cessation of the daily, the continuous, and the annual rituals and holy feasts in Israel, including the yearly special sacrifices and rituals of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. David Peterson, whose commentary I've been reading, was on to something when he wrote these words. Listen carefully. The words soon disappear. That's how he translates this vanishing altogether or soon to vanish altogether. The words soon disappear could point to the imminent passing away of institutions associated with the first covenant, such as the temple and its rituals, enabling us to date Hebrews before A.D. 70. When this happened with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. Now, there are other people that think that Hebrews was written after that destruction, and you might think that that's unwise, unreasonable, and unintelligent, but in fact it isn't. In fact, there is a good reason to believe that, but we are going to, going to explore it dialectically. Let me read it again. The words soon disappear, or the way I translated it, close to vanishing altogether, could point to the imminent passing away of institutions associated with the first covenant, such as the temple and its rituals, enabling us to date Hebrews before A.D. 70, when this happened with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. So we have here, I believe, a trajectory toward A.D. 70. And it seems from the reading here that this epistle or this homily was preached and proclaimed on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem when the old covenant institutions were to vanish altogether. We have a very hard time relating to the profundity of an event like that. That would be to the Jew at the time like the total destruction of America, the destruction of its capital city, the destruction of its documents, its constitution, its declaration of independence, its demolition through fire and through destruction and through military conquest. And in fact, the destruction of Jerusalem had far more far-reaching catastrophe or catastrophic results than could ever be even with the destruction of America because it meant the end of an institution that was thousands of years old and a transformation that is so astonishing as to be earth-shaking, in fact, universe-determining. I want to begin with an analogy that was unexpected, and I love unexpected things in the scriptures and in the study of the scriptures because the Holy Spirit is the hegemonic spirit, as he's called, in Psalm 51, 12, strengthen me with your hegemonic spirit, says the Septuagint, which is in Psalm 50 and verse 14, your leading spirit, your authoritative spirit, your powerful spirit. AD 70, in keeping with our tent theme, which began in Hebrews 8, 2, and through 5, and which is picked up again in Hebrews 9.1, going all the way through 9.13, or 9.12 at least, A.D. 70 meant the pulling up of the tent pegs, the pulling down of the poles, and the folding up of the old tent, as it were, by an analogy. The Holy Spirit makes this clear. The job of the Holy Spirit, the hegemonic spirit, the Lord the Spirit, as he's called, is to make 
clear the meaning of the scriptures. In fact, we're actually going to see this verb, delao, which means to make clear in Hebrews 9, 8. And we're going to get there sooner than many of you may think. Delao is to make clear. The Holy Spirit makes clear what's in the scriptures. Because what's in the scriptures isn't self-evidently clear. There are many things in the scriptures, in fact, in a massive amount of scripture that are poetical and metaphorical. They are riddled with figures of speech and parables and eschatological apocalyptic language that takes the Holy Spirit to make clear. The Holy Spirit makes clear. The job of the Holy Spirit, the hegemonic spirit, the Lord the Spirit, is to make clear the meaning of the scriptures. This is what sustains a spiritual revolution. The dissimilarity between the new and the old covenant, the second and the first, is striking in Hebrews in order to make clear to the readers the choice they had to make once and for all and with finality. Now, I want to consider an analogy that I've never considered until a few days ago, and I'm still developing it. It's still kind of green. This is a, a day of the green tree on this one. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul is speaking here clearly of the human body, speaking of his own human body, his physical body. And we all share that in common. If this, he says, this tent of ours tent of ours is destroyed. He uses the word kataluo here, kataluo, K-A-T-A-L-U-O. Kataluo means to be destroyed. It's a very strong word, kataluo. If this tent of ours is destroyed, we have a house, not of human construction, everlasting in the heavens. And this is kind of like what happened by an analogy, an historical analogy in AD 70. An earthly tent, which was also a temple, was dissolved and it gave way to an eternal heavenly temple, which is Jesus Christ united with his people. The Holy Spirit makes this clear. Kataluo for destroy in 2 Corinthians 5.1 is like luo. You see, luo means the same thing. Kata is just an intensifying prefix for luo. Kataluo. So luo is a similar way of expressing it. And in John 2.19, Jesus used this term luo where he said, destroy this temple, luo, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. I'll raise it up again, he said, in just three days. He used the word for resurrection and raising it up. And this speaks of the sanctuary, which is his body. In John 2, 21, they didn't understand then, nor did the disciples until after he was risen from the dead, that he was speaking of, again, his body. The body as a tent, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. The body is a temple, John 2, 19. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 619. The corporate body of Jesus Christ is a temple for the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 316. The temple, therefore, and the tent are one by analogy. That which was in the tent in the wilderness became in the temple in Jerusalem. And all that was about to come to an end. Now take this into the corporate body of Jesus Christ again, which is the new covenant community. To the saints in Corinth, that's an oxymoron in itself, saints in Corinth, Paul said, don't you know that you are the temple, meaning the sanctuary of God, and that the spirit is housed in you? And I refer you to previous messages, even last Sunday's, increment 267 for this, the spirit housed in you. Paul said to them collectively, that they were a temple of God 
and that the spirit is housed in them collectively. He also made a very strong point in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that the individual body, the physical body of each saint, is the sanctuary for the Holy Spirit who is in you, he said, whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You're not your own to do with your body whatever you want to do with your body. You can't change its gender by God's permission. You can't change its activity from serving the Lord to an act with a prostitute. That's not something you have the right to do. You may do it, but you're really not your own to do it. Neither am I. I'm not my own to do with my body what I want to do. The body is for the Lord. It's made for the Lord. It's made for service to the Lord. And that's when the mind is happy when the body is serving the Lord. Now let's go a step further and let the scripture speak, which says, God has raised us up with Christ Jesus and seated us with him in the heavens. Ephesians 2.6, we have a house in the heavens. He has seated us with Jesus Christ in the heavens. In Ephesians 2.6, we have then an everlasting house in the heavens. But further still, according to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians is really an epistle written to the Laodiceans and probably should be called Laodiceans, but because it's traditionally called Ephesians, why confuse the matter? But in Ephesians 2.19, my translation says this, So then, you, who were once pagans, are no longer merely strangers and resident aliens, in Israel that is, but your fellow citizens, sum politi, with the Jewish citizens, meaning. And that also is found in Ephesians 3.6, you are joint body and joint partakers with the Jews in what God has promised and what he's promised is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Hebrews 8, 8b to 12, and Ezekiel 36, 27, etc., 32, 40, etc. And so pagans, as well as Israelis or Jews, are beneficiaries of the new covenant and the promises of it. But let me read this again. So then you were once... You once pagans are no longer merely strangers and resident aliens in Israel, but your fellow citizens with the Jews, whom God has promised the new covenant, is what is meant here, with the Jewish saints and all members of the household of God. This says that you are members of the household of God with no ifs about it. Hebrews 3.6 says you are God's house if you hold fast the hope to the end. Now, how does, how does this square? If we are already the household of God here with no ifs, then why does Hebrews 3, 6 say there's an if to it in 3, 5, and 6? Well, it's simply this. We are the household of God, whether we hold that hope or not, but we demonstrate that we are the household of God in this time in between. We demonstrate it. We manifest it by holding an expectation until the end, an expectation, a hope of the universal restoration until the end. That's what demonstrates us to be God's house. Verse 20 says, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the chief cornerstone holding it all together being Jesus Christ. In him, verse 21, the whole edifice is being joined together and growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You are in the heavenlies. You are a sanctuary. You are an eternal sanctuary already in the heavens, in whom you are being built up together into a residence of God in the spirit. That's Ephesians 2.19 to 22, growing out of Ephesians 2.6 in connection with 2 Corinthians 5.1, in connection in turn with Hebrews 8.13. Notice here that the sanctuary in the Lord and Curios in verse 21 of Ephesians 2 is the same as the residence of God in the spirit. 
The residence of God in the spirit is the same as the holy sanctuary in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is the spirit. The spirit is the Lord. The spirit is the hegemonic spirit who strengthens us. Psalm 51.12, Septuagint 50.14, Ephesians 3.16, may you be strengthened and receive strength inside by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Filled with the Spirit, 5.18, strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10, same thing. Why? Because the Lord is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.16 to 18. What am I doing here? Well, I'm doing an analogy to show that as when our human bodies, are, as temporary tents are destroyed in death, they yield to everlasting houses in the heavens. And as the human and the corporate body of Jesus Christ is the real and everlasting temple of God, so, by analogy, the temple in Jerusalem was a temporary residence of God and of the Holy Spirit, but its destruction, which is inevitable in the writing of Hebrews, yielded to an everlasting structure, which is human beings in union with Christ eternally in the heavens, but also on earth in this time in between, through and in the Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, the hegemonic Spirit who pours strength into us for life in the Spirit and for combat in the arena, which is the time in between the two great eschatological alterations. Now that paragraph that began with what I'm doing, what am I doing, and eschatological alterations is a book. You can fan it out into a book. Somebody can do that in the next generation if they want. Physical death, then, is like the takedown of a tent. Bodily death usually follows a gradual dissolution. And like a tent, the pegs are pulled up. Our association with the earth and our attachment to the earth is severed. The poles fold up. Our skeletal structure dissolves. And it's folded up. We're all folded up. Bodily death usually follows a gradual dissolution until there's a final destruction, a vanishing away. This is analogous with the Old Covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, the glory of the Old Covenant was described as fading, weakening, on the way to vanishing from the veiled face of Moses, its human mediator. In contrast to that, the glory of the new covenant is unfading, everlasting, always shining in the unveiled face of its divine and human mediator, Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.6. It's a glory that shines into our hearts, in fact, to impart the knowledge of God, knowledge which all are destined to have in future world according to the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 and which the New Covenant community has already in some meaningful measure, even now, in the time in between. The phrase, soon to disappear then, angus afanismos, or as we have translated it, close to vanishing altogether, is one word in the Greek text, or really two, angus, close, and afanismos, to total dissolution or close to vanishing. This word is used in the, new, in the Septuagint translation of many verses in Jeremiah. And this is a fascinating study in itself. And again, I've had to condense and concentrate reams of doctrine into these short paragraphs for this message today. But you could do a study itself in the word aphonismo as it's found in Jeremiah, as it's found in Ezekiel, as it's found in Daniel, as it's found in Deuteronomy. And there are many passages in Jeremiah where aphonismos actually deals with the utter destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And the, and the cities of Judah also. For example, in the Septuagint, and you have to look up the Septuagint and notice that in the English translation there are different references, but the Septuagint of Jeremiah 9-11, speaking of 9-11s, 10-22, or the desolation of the whole land, Jeremiah 
1816 and 2511. It's also used for the total ruination of Babylon nine times in Jeremiah's Septuagint version, including 2512. It's also used for the total demolition of Egypt, found in 4619 of Jeremiah, the Septuagint, that is. The English would be 2619. Jeremiah 5129, the English would be 2829. Likewise, there are nine uses of aphanismos in Ezekiel, all have to do with impending judgment. And in Daniel 9.18 and 9.26, the word indicates the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you think the Hebrew writer knows this when he says aphanismos? Do you think he knows that the word aphanismos is used in all of these connections for the destruction of Jerusalem? Do you think that perhaps he's implying through the A.D. 70 trajectory the imminent destruction of Jerusalem? Or, as some say, he may be referring to Jerusalem's destruction, which has already happened. Now, I know that sounds off-key, but it's something we're going to consider in a dialectic. As far as I'm concerned, I believe, at this point, Hebrews was written on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem. But again, there are arguments that can be entertained on the other side of this. Again... Aphanismos is used in Revelation, or it's used, rather, about the destruction of both Sodom and Egypt. In Revelation, Jerusalem is actually identified with Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, and it's explicitly called Egypt and Sodom in Revelation 11:8. both of which were totally destroyed, but both of which, it might be surprising to you, both Egypt and and Sodom are destined ultimately to be part of the universal restoration. God calls Egypt and Assyria his people and his treasure in Isaiah 19.25. Ezekiel 16.55, he says Sodom will be restored to its original fortunes. And Matthew 23.39 says Jerusalem will say again someday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which depicts universal restoration in Acts 3.21. Aphanismos, then, in Hebrews 8.13, is speaking of the A.D. 70 trajectory that's identifiable through so much of the New Testament and not just Matthew 24 and its parallels in Luke 19 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. And so... What is needed to understand this kind of language is a psychic conversion. I've said it before, I'll say it again. What's needed is a psychic conversion. And what the psychic conversion does is awakens the apocalyptic imagination. It begins to transform the imagination. If you really listen to the teaching of the scriptures under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to just change your way of thinking. It's going to change you. It's going to change me. It's going to bring us into a different kind of being altogether, a being in love. To understand the AD 70 trajectory requires a psychic conversion. Now, as R.M. Duran observed, and we're going to forgive R.M. Duran, who went to the Lord, went home to be with the Lord in 2021, we have to forgive him because he was an avid Milwaukee Brewers fan. And he was a teacher, a theologian in Marquette University, which is in Wisconsin. And so he was an avid Milwaukee Brewers fan. So we'll take a moment out of silence to forgive R.M. Duran. Then we will go on to say what he said in his book called Systematic Theology. He said this, psychic conversion enables a person, among other things, to approach some understanding of the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ, the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ Jesus. It allows, he goes on to say slightly later, it allows one to gain some analogical understanding of the divine drama in which eternal Trinitarian love chose to manifest itself in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now that is what we call a loaded statement. 
psychic conversion. I'm going to read it again. Psychic conversion enables a person, among other things, to approach some understanding of the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ, Jesus. It allows one to gain some analogical, that's, there's your analogy, understanding of the divine drama in which the eternal Trinitarian love chose to manifest itself in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's pretty much a summary of the whole Bible. Understanding the apocalyptic genre, the way of thinking that the Jews of the first century thought in, the way Jesus thought. He thought in the apocalyptic genre. He thought with an apocalyptic imagination, something lacking in the literalists of our time who have developed a prophetic scheme in which they see the destruction of the material universe, in which they see a rapture of a few, of a few people from the church, a few million people, a coming tribulation, etc., etc., ad nauseum. And by doing that, they have caused the expectation of Christians ultimately to be dashed upon the rocks of apostasy. And so that's a ver- this is a very important thing to have the transformation of our imagination, which ultimately leads to the transformation of our expectation and the transformation of our very being. Understanding the apocalyptic genre, which is so often deployed in the New Testament's AD 70 trajectory, requires this psychic conversion. Apocalyptic insights require a converted imagination. For as Bernard Lonergan, or Bernard Lonergan said, quote, insight is into imaginative representations. That's a very profound and loaded, succinct statement. Insight is into imaginative representations. Teachers who lack the apocalyptic imagination, and there's a whole book by John J. Collins called The Apocalyptic Imagination, Teachers who lack the apocalyptic imagination are forced to interpret literally some very important passages of scripture which God intended to be metaphorically understood. Again, the emphasis is the need here. This emphasizes the profoundly important need for a psychic conversion and with it a transformation of the imagination. As John J. Collins, who wrote the book called The Apocalyptic Imagination, put it, quote, the apocalyptic revolution is a revolution in the imagination. I couldn't agree more. There is even now an apocalyptic revolution going on in parts of the New Covenant community. It's the result of psychic conversions being brought about by the Lord, the Spirit. All while I taught the book of Revelation, called it Rev the Book, in 515 hours of teaching and countless more hours of preparation, I was undergoing a psychic conversion. I was seeing the aesthetic value of the revelation of Christ in imaginative representations in the book of Revelation. And it became, it became a stunning picture of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and his universal transformation to the infinite better of a new heavens and a new earth of of the universe itself and of all of humanity. A stunning picture, not seen by the literalist. The literalist doesn't see this. They're trapped in a stunted imagination and they bring the church into a false expectation. And that's so dangerous, I can't even begin to accentuate the dangers of that but there is now with the USSJC an apocalyptic revolution going on in parts of the new covenant community the result of psychic conversions being brought about by the Lord the spirit the hegemonic spirit by the psychic conversion the capacity to understand apocalyptic language The language of metaphor, of creative analogy, of parables, and biblical figures of speech is granted to Christians. The capacity, again, to understand parables, apocalyptic language, figures of speech, creative analogies in the scripture. When you don't have that conversion, 
yielding to that imagination, then you interpret things completely wrongly in the letter and not the spirit and in a crass kind of literalism that brings Christians into having a false expectation which usually ends up in profound disappointment and rejection of Jesus Christ and Christianity, which is another movement that's happening even now too, a rejection. Now when we do have this capacity, we're able to discern the meaning of apocalyptic images, like for example, the gathering of the eagles around the body. Sometimes it says where the body is, the vultures are gathered. The word vultures is not used there, but eagles. It refers to the eagle standards of the Roman legion. And the bodies there are the bodies of Jewish revolutionaries who Jesus counseled not to rebel against Rome. They did. They were destroyed. They were killed. And around the bodies of those Jewish revolutionaries and rebels, there was always a gathering of eagles, the eagle, golden eagle standards of the Roman legions. That's a prophetic imagination, an apocalyptic image that Jesus presented in Matthew 24. The image of Roman soldiers with their eagle standards as responsible for the slaughter of the Jewish rebels defending doomed Jerusalem in the Jewish war leading up to Jerusalem's total desolation, which is what Hebrews 8.13 is indicating and implying. This desolation brought about by the legions under Titus of Rome, consequently this army is called the abomination of desolation. Abomination because their standards de depicted the Caesar as God, depicted Nike or Nike, the goddess of victory as God rather than God himself, rather than the God of Israel. The abomination of desolation is an army of Roman legions with their blasphemous standards that would cause the desolation of Jerusalem. Without a prophetic imagination, you put Matthew 24 in the future of Christians today, in the future of the world today, and you miss the entire boat of that remarkable chapter and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 19, especially around verse 44, and also Luke 21, and you miss the whole A.D. 70 trajectory of the New Testament, which is a remarkable catastrophe in terms of Christian hope and expectation. So this abomination, this desolation brought about by the legions under Titus of Rome, the abomination of desolation, as Jesus called it in Matthew 24, 15, is what Hebrews 8, 13 is alluding to by using the word aphanismos. And Jesus said Daniel the prophet spoke about it when he spoke about the aphanismos of Jerusalem. And so Matthew 24, 15 has its connection with Daniel the prophet. Hebrews 8, again, 13, by saying new, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the old, etc. By saying new, that's the key word here, he makes the first covenant obsolete. Now, what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether, aphanismos. Gingrich defines aphanismos as disappearance or destruction in Hebrews 8.13, a vanishing away. Freiburg, the Freibergs, a married couple that wrote a lexicon, define it as disappearance, a doing away with. A.T. Robertson makes a provocative observation in his dealing with this verse. In It's going to fuel a dialectic with Duran, who believed that Hebrews was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. But A.T.R., A.T. Robertson, says this. If he wrote after A.D. 70, would he not have written, has vanished away? Good point, A.T. We'll see, though. In the A.D. 70 trajectory, cosmology... The study of the universe meets apocalyptic, a genre of thinking. Regarding the psychic conversion and the resultant ability to approach some understanding of the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ Jesus, let's consider this. The temple in Jerusalem. Now this is where I'm going to lead into the next message. I'm going to close off this message with this. I'm going to read pretty large portions of Josephus. Josephus, the historian, who was a Jewish historian, but who was sympathetic to the Romans and was a general in the Jewish army 
who was captured and then wrote a history. Josephus wrote two profoundly important historical books, one called The Jewish Wars, another called Antiquities, or Jewish Antiquities. I'm going to quote pretty heavy sections from this from the public domain version of Josephus, so I don't have to give a whole lot of copyright information at the end because it's, it's in public domain. First, I want to represent for you the, the temple to the Jew with a prophetic and eschatological apocalyptic imagination. The temple represented the universe. And everything about the temple and the, its interior was a representation of the whole universe, the celestial and terrestrial and the divine, all in one universe. Multiverse is an invention of scientific belief. There is a universe, and that's a proper word to use. Jewish Wars, chapter 3. Listen very carefully, beginning with line 179 going all the way through 186, and that's a, couple, that's a few paragraphs in English literature. But notice what I'm reading here. Notice it very carefully. Jewish Wars, chapter 3, lines 179 to 186. Read this way. Now here, one may wonder at the ill will which men bear to us, Josephus writes, about, as a Jew, and which they profess to bear on account of our despising that deity which they pretend to honor. For if anyone do but consider the fabric of the tabernacle, and this is cosmology in Hebrews 1.10 to 12, incidentally, and take a view of the garments of the high priest and of those vessels which we make use of in their sacred ministration, he will find that our legislator was a divine man, speaking of Moses, and that we are unjustly reproached by others. For if anyone do without prejudice and with judgment look upon these things, listen carefully how I emphasize this, he will find they were everyone made in a way of imitation and representation of the universe. That's Josephus. That was line 180, or paragraph 180, we'd almost say, from Jewish Wars, chapter 3. He goes on to say this, and this I'm quoting directly from Josephus in the public domain. When Moses distinguished the tabernacle into three parts and allowed two of them to the priests as a place accessible and common, he denoted the land and the sea these being of general access to all. But he set apart the third division for God. That's the third aspect of the tent for God because heaven is inaccessible to men. I'm quoting Josephus now. And when he ordered 12 loaves to be set on the table, he denoted the year as distinguished into so many months. By branching out the lampstand into 70 parts, he says, he secretly intimated the decani, or 70 divisions of the planets. And as to the seven lamps upon the lampstands, they referred to the course of the planets, of which the number is Seven, that's how many planets they believed at that time, not knowing that there were nine plus a couple others. Line 183 goes on to say, The veils, too, which were composed of four things, they declared the four elements, for the fine linen was proper to signify the earth, because the flax grows out of the earth. The purple signified the sea, because that color is dyed by the blood of a sea shellfish. The blue is fit to signify the air, and the scarlet will naturally be an indication of fire. Now the vestment of the high priest being made of linen signified the earth. The blue denoted the sky, being like the lightning in its pomegranates, and in the noise of the bells resembling thunder. And for the ephod, it showed 
that God had made the universe of four elements. Now, we're going to notice that in our next message, our next Wednesday's message, elements here, stoichia, from 2 Peter 3.10 and 3.12. We're going to go to 2 Peter 3.8-18 in our next Wednesday increment. Four elements, he said. And as for the gold interwoven, I suppose it related to the splendor by which all things are enlightened. He also appointed the breastplate to be placed in the middle of the ephod to resemble the earth, for that has the very middle place of the world. And the belt which surrounded the high priest all around signified the ocean, for that goes all around and includes the universe. Each of the sardonyxes declares us, to the, declares us the sun and the moon, those, I mean, that were in the nature of buttons on the high priest's shoulders. And for the twelve stones, whether we understand by them the months or whether we understand the like number of the signs that circle what the Greeks call the zodiac, we shall not be mistaken in their meaning. As for the mitre, which was of a blue color, it seems to me to mean heaven. Is that a representation of the universe in the temple and in the priest's garments and in the tent and in the tabernacle and the sanctuary, the three rooms of the tent, or what? Yes, the Jews pictured the temple as their universe. When the temple was destroyed, their whole universe went up in flames. That's how it was to them. That's how profound it was to the Jew at the time. And so next in the Jewish Wars, chapter 5, he writes this, starting at, this is just line 217. Now the seven lamps signified the seven planets. For so many there were springing out of the lampstand. Now the twelve loaves that were upon the table signified the circle of the zodiac and the year. Verse, and then line 218. But the altar of incense, by its thirteen kinds of sweet-smelling spices which with, this, with which the sea replenished it, signified that God is the possessor of all things that are both in the uninhabitable and habitable parts of the earth, and that they are to be dedicated to his use. And also of interest, Jewish Wars, chapter 5, verses or lines 269 and following through 272, and I'll close off our study with that. Now those who were at work covered themselves with hurdles spread over their banks, and their engines were opposed to them when they made their excursions. The engines, he's now talking about the Roman legions, the engines that all the legions had already prepared for them were admirably contrived, but still more extraordinary ones belonged to the tenth legion, those who threw darts and those who threw stones were more forcible and larger than the rest, by which they not only repelled the excursions of the Jews, but drove those away that were upon the walls also. Now the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent and were carried 400 yards and further. These are from the siege engines in A.D. 70, A.D. 66 and on through 70. As for the Jews... They at first watched the coming of the stone, for it was of a white color and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made, but could be seen also before it came by its brightness. The first stone that was cast from the siege engines of the Roman legion, this is me now commenting, came and it, in the sunlight it looked like a bright white stone. And when they saw it on the parapets, they didn't say, look, a stone is coming, which would have been eben, stone. They said, look, the sun, S-O-N, is coming, ben, is coming. And so some actually may have realized that when they said the sun comes, this was the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds for the destruction of Jerusalem, not the second coming in our future although there is that, there will be that. So let's continue. As for the Jews, they at first watched for the coming of the stone, 
where it was a white color and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made, Peter said, the heavens will be destroyed with a great noise. This is the great noise, the first stone from the siege engine of the Roman legions, the abomination that makes desolate. That's Again, that's my comment. And so it says, I'm going to repeat that again, line 271, Jewish Wars, chapter 5. As for the Jews, they at first watched for the coming of the stone, for it was of a white color and could be, therefore, not only be perceived by the great noise it made, meaning as it whistled through the air, but that it could be seen also before it came by its brightness, like the lightning shining from the east to the west as Jesus put it. Then in verse 72, 272, line 272, Jewish Wars, chapter 5, according to the watchman that sat upon the towers, gave them notice when the engine was let go and the stone came from it and cried aloud in their own country language, the sun comes, the sun comes, not a stone comes, Eben, but the sun Ben comes. This is the coming of the Son of Man. And so I would say, I asked the question in my own commentary here, is this the sign of the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24, 30 and 29 and 30, which is really one of many comings, the last of which is the universal parousia indicated in Hebrews 9, 28, the second appearance of the great priest. He closes off that section by saying, so those who were in its way stood off and threw themselves down upon the ground by which means and by their own thus guarding themselves, the stone fell down and did them no harm. Interestingly, the first stone did no harm. That's a picture of Jesus Christ coming, not to do harm, but to save. He is the Lamb of God. I'll close by saying this. The earthly tent and then the stone temple in Jerusalem were representations of the heavens and the earth, the entire created universe. And there is therefore a link up between Josephus, especially in the Jewish wars, and 2 Peter 3.10 to 14. But we're going to take up that whole thing, and I'm going to call that section of our next Wednesday's message, What Are You Looking For? What are you looking for? We'll close with that. Amen.